Hello and welcome to Ladywood, the podcast that is re-watching and watching the entire oeuvre of Deadwood, uh, the, the first three seasons in the lead up to the movie that should apparently be coming out in 2019. Filming is underway. I still think it could be an elaborate hoax, but we're crossing our fingers. It would be quite the elaborate hoax. Um, uh, we are collectively two fans of the show and one newbie. My name is Lynn Sternberger, and I am a television writer in Los Angeles. My name is Brandi Sperry. I'm also a writer in Los Angeles and co-host of the Down Gabby podcast. My name is Sita Sean. I am a comedy writer and stand-up comedian, newbie to Deadwood. And today we are discussing the sixth episode of the first season, which uh, paired writer Malcolm McRory and director Davis Guggenheim. They were both credited on the second episode, which we really enjoyed. And uh, this episode, Plague, first aired April 25th, 2004. So we are almost 15 years later. Mm -hmm. So in this episode, Bullock encounters native resistance in his quest to bring a murderer to justice. Swearingen presses a resentful Farnum to keep tabs on Alma and Trixie. And the Camp Fathers pool their resources to dispatch writers after the precious vaccine and build a sick tent as smallpox arrives in Deadwood. Cochran turns to a distressed Jane for help caring for the diseased in the coming days. The Camp Fathers? The Camp Fathers. <laughs> this is from HBO's own episode summary, so that is how HBO thinks of uh, all of those scumbags who are <laughs> gathered in the gem saloon. Not wow, all scumbags. Just, but... just just, the patriarchy coming home to roost, you know? <laughs> we could just say the Camp Patriarchy. Yeah, there we go. The Camp Patriarchy pool their resources. But that is later in the episode. We open first on a really shocking uh, sequence of scenes, I think, which is Bullock's attack by a Native American in the area. What did you guys make of this? I was really confused by the sequence when it first happened. And I, I was thinking about it. I was like, okay, maybe this is vaguely related to the square had attack. But then I was like, wait, the square had attack was one perpetrated by Al and his men. It was actually not a Native American attack at all. Mm -hmm. So it confused me, the the motive of the Native American attacking Seth. And, and it confused to confuse me until like basically the end of the episode. Oh, know? really? Yeah. Well, I think Charlie Utter had a good sequence where he was like explaining mm -hmm. things after yeah. he stumbled across the scene which was helpful to me yeah um i also having seen it before i kind of remembered I, we see the burial shrine and mm -hmm. i was like oh that's important mm -hmm. that that's there yeah i was like thankfully charlie utter is informed sort of about some of these things yeah and and can explain to the audience why n neither of these men were really like in the wrong mm -hmm. i think that's ultimately what's so sad about this scene is like yeah. Neither of these men wants to hurt the other man. Seth was in the wrong place at the wrong time, basically. Yeah. yeah. This guy did what he thought he had to do. His to... honor book code. Yeah. But the violence of it as an opening sequence was really startling to me. But it made sense when you think of it as an act of revenge for a fallen friend. You know, mm -hmm. like it was tying it into the violence that uh, Wild Bill Hickok like suffered mm -hmm. so it was it was perpetuating essentially the same cycle from previous episode completely thematically yeah. it was like the the defense of uh, a dear friend yeah. and of course that's what bullock is out mm -hmm. on his own quest regarding 
So it was kind of a perfect parallel. And yeah. I do think it, it went a long ways towards sort of like waking us up of the threat outside of the camp, mm-hmm. um, which we're starting to see with like disease as well. But also, yeah, it's not just gunfights in saloons. There's a whole world surrounding these people that can impinge upon their safety. Well, and when Seth left to go on this mission, he sort of backwardsly acknowledged to Saul that it could be a suicide mission, you know, if I get killed, good luck with the fucking store or whatever he says. So to see him like fighting so hard for his life is is interesting as well. Yeah, well, I think it's like instinctual with yeah, Bullock, right? Sure. He's definitely losing the fight for most of the sequence and mm-hmm. and you see it's just sort of chance that mm-hmm. he gets the upper hand and is able to walk away from it. I thought it was like a beautifully choreographed fight sequence. I yeah. hope it wasn't insulting to first peoples who watch it and are like, oh, they're doing this all wrong, this would never happen, or this is just made up Native American facts with like the horses and like the I hope that Deadwood did its research and had somebody on staff to be like, yeah. this is actually these right. are real words that this, you know, first it's hard. person it, is saying. Yeah. It's hard for us to know and then it's also hard because this is, you know, just a guy who's there to fight Seth. He he doesn't really get Backstory. Yeah. Yeah. Nor will he. Ever. So, yeah. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> He's so dead. There is no Native American episode of Deadwood as Damn there it. is in Westworld. So far, the only thing Westworld has done better than Deadwood. <laughs> um, okay, so we we leave Seth in a state of um, near death. Bloodiness. <laughs> Uh, he falls over in the bush, and then we're back at Deadwood. Uh, so we're in the Belly Union, and Joni is working her magic. And actually, we get the first cross of Joni and Ellsworth, who is like seemingly stumbled into the Belly Union. <laughs> really should have washed his face first before he went in. <laughs> dirty. But he has a working fucking gold claim. Thank you for allowing me my full range of expression. I just love Ellsworth. I think he and he and Joni have good chemistry in the scene. They do. Yeah, not necessarily romantic chemistry, but Elmer has chemistry with all the female characters because he he doesn't look at them in the like leering way that so many of the other men do. He's, right, and, he's our feminist. Uh, yeah, I mean, sort of. He's definitely more excited to play craps than he is to like try to get some pussy. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and also uh, at the Bella Union, we see young Joey return. He went to get some vaccine slash Nebraska pussy. Oh, he did not succeed. <laughs> He's looking real rough. He's looking really yeah. not good. He's like making deathbed confessionals about being a virgin. <laughs> and Sai's like, just get to your room. Just get out of my sight. Get out of here. I, I thought it was funny slash I was surprised that we actually flashed to some of the prostitutes discussing Joey at one point mm-hmm. and then being like, he was trying, he wanted to save himself till he knew what he was doing. He wouldn't just let us sleep with him. And, How does that work? Yeah, I was like, why were they so generously wanting to deflower Joey? Anyways. He was like their mascot. He was like the prostitute's mascot or something. <laughs> That's the only thing I can imagine. It's rare that we get to see the prostitutes having conversation amongst themselves. So mm-hmm. I was paying attention. But of course it was a bad man. He returned, but of course others in the camp are already sick so we know that smallpox has taken hold there's another guy who is a generic customer at the gem who has Mm. been overcome with the symptoms the back aches the shaking the sweating and al is 
basically just annoyed about this. I mean, I think Al's attitude towards the whole thing is very interesting. The way he tries to be the one who keeps a level head about everything and keeps everyone else having a level head about it. Really wants to, like, downplay the threat. But then he is sort of Al's version of nice to the prostitute who's worried that she's been exposed to smallpox. Yes. Right. Yes. Doesn't he say she can stick with, like, handjobs or something for a little while? Yep, stick to handjobs for a day or two. <laughs> he also noticed that she's probably safe because she's been exposed before, which was, like, a clever bit of scientific knowledge I didn't expect Al's origin to have. Well, Al seems to know a fair amount about... Pla- By the way, he calls it plague, it's smallpox, but he says at that meeting of the um, patriarchy mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that he's outlived a couple of smallpox... Uh, Bouts in so different places. He's effectively he's gone safe. It before. Right. Yeah, he's safe and he knows that it, they need to outlast it more than fear it and, and panic. So when, when Al and Sai started talking about how they could do something together as the two basic wealth, wealthiest men in town, I thought that they saw the plague as an opportunity to like eliminate some people that didn't, they didn't want. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, oh, this person disappeared. Oh, what was plague? <laughs> you know, like, what a good cover. That's genius, Sita, and I'm sad that they didn't come up with that, honestly, because that would have been very in Al's wheelhouse. Like, oh, yeah, just manipulate the exposure and get rid of my enemies. And I I will note that they um, erected the pest tent at the end of Chinaman's Mm -hmm, Alley. mm -hmm. So clearly they were like, well, you know, who cares if uh, that area of town gets exposed to the pestilence. Right. But the more important piece of information for that is that Sai has been buying up land near Chinaman's Alley for a potential gambling hall. And I thought that this is kind of an interesting historical thing, right? Because when Chinese men were immigrating to the U.S. to work in the camps and gold mining and all that stuff, they weren't allowed to bring women. So in America, America was primarily like young, able-bodied Chinese men that were in these camps doing laundry, cooking food, or whatever. So essentially, they had no recreation. They probably weren't going to sleep with the white whores. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they had nothing except gambling. So gambling totally makes sense in the, as an extracurricular activity. I mean, Sai is a smart motherfucker, yeah. and I think Al is like, damn, he thought of that, and I didn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think he resents him additionally because of his forethought. He resents him for that. He resents him for the way that he's acted around this arrival of smallpox in the camp. Because Trying knows, to keep it hush-hush. Yes, when Al's like, I don't care who hears me. We need to get the vaccine, basically. You know, it's... Al gets a couple of very softening moments in this episode when uh, at that meeting of the patriarchy, the reverend has a seizure. And Al just casually mentions he used to have a brother who had that sort of thing mm-hmm. happen to him. And then later... When the doc is examining Rev, makes this comment that says, prescribe this malinger or a can of peaches and show him the fucking door. And then he winks at him. <laughs> Al Swearingen winks, people. <laughs> this is a moment. He this had, a, he had moment. a real good comedy moment uh, after the reverend recovered and he said he could have just said amen. <laughs> I, was, I was dying. It, it was great. I mean, the whole that whole sequence is great and we'll go into more detail about it, but I just want to point out that really like Al has a weird hero's journey in this episode and you like the things that he mentions the way he acts towards the reverend colors the way we've seen him be nice to jewel in the Mm -hmm. past uh he seems a little soft-hearted toward people who have some type of disability or some medical problems yeah 
I don't know. Yeah. And he buys peaches for everyone. <laughs> yeah. I thought that that was so funny that the meeting of the patriarchy was like, make sure there's peaches and pears on the table. <laughs> like, what a good host. <laughs> yeah. And then another moment when they're there, when people start to pull out the money to pay the riders to go to the, get the vaccine and everything else, Al clocks that Merrick, the newspaper man, doesn't have any money. Mm-hmm. And he just kind of looks at him and he goes, oh, you're good. And I'm like, I know. Yeah. Oh my god! Like that was actually like a really nice thing for you to say to this guy. Yeah, I'm. I'm not gonna say you would want to necessarily go out for like a birthday dinner with Al, but it does seem like he's the guy that would pick up like the rest of the check <laughs> when everybody else is like, "Well, I paid my share." Well, uh, I got the appetizer and uh, yeah, with the comment where he's like, "Well, let's just get the fuck out of here." I'll cover it. God damn you guys! But everyone's like, "Thanks, Al." <laughs> Al at the Cheesecake Factory. I mean, I'm just imagining. But, but he does in return for covering Merrick uh, in the sort of like everybody's ponying up some money to get to pay for the riders and the vaccine and everything. He does uh, believe that it buys him editorial control <laughs> of the is no- so funny. <laughs> it's so good. As a former editor, uh, I have to say that I was with Merrick. Like, I was so irritated for him. <laughs> Although I ultimately think Al was right to put free and not gratis. <laughs> <laughs> What's gratis? I loved it when Merrick said, What luck, Al, that you have such a keen editorial sense. Yes. <laughs> it was just such a loaded comment. That would be me to any of the writers I used yeah. to edit. <laughs> we leave them. Writers go out for the vaccine. They're erecting a pest tent. Importantly, another ongoing storyline in this episode is that Farnham is strategizing. How is he going to make the offer that Al has told him to make on Alma's claim? And Alma is supposedly being drugged by Trixie, who's caring for her. But in fact, she's getting clean and trying to hide that from Farnham. And so we get several scenes in which Farnham is investigating Alma's state. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, ultimately, she comes on to him, (laughs) uh, which is super uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. She's all sweaty. (laughs) Yeah, because Trixie has told her she needs a fake being high. And she's sort of like, how are you, Mr. Farnham? <laughs> Which leads to the incredibly funny exchange where E.B. has to tell Al about this and be like, the dope's made the widow Randy. <laughs> always love a good use of that word. I like that he also thought he has enough self-awareness to realize she wasn't Randy for him. <laughs> that it was the dope doing it. I don't know why she went to that place. I guess that was Alba um, doing a little bit of improv. Yeah, well, I'm I think maybe she thought it would make him uncomfortable. That's a big gamble because he yeah. could have gone for it. And he could have gone for it, like... and then she would have had to sleep with Eb. Oh my god! Oh. <laughs> and his ratty coat. Ugh. <laughs> Take off that ratty coat. <laughs> but in this episode is also when there's four women together in a room at the same time, and only one of them is a prostitute, which is like a pretty good progress, I think, right for Deadwood. Right. Oh, because you have the little girl. Uh-huh. I wasn't counting her. The Hooplehead. Hooplehead. <laughs> Hopefully she gets a name soonish. Um, but yeah, so we've got Alma, Trixie, and Calamity Jane who's mm-hmm. found her way back mm-hmm. into town and is visiting. And my God, it's such a sweet scene. Yeah, because she's essentially saying goodbye to the little girl because she's going to go help the doc, care to all the patients, and she knows she's not going to be able to come and visit her when she's been around these people when she's mm-hmm. been exposed. Uh, it's very nice. And it's I love the scene where the dog convinces Jane to help as well. Yeah. 
Um, he's really helping her see that she could have another purpose in life besides being Bill Hickok's sidekick. And he's very understanding in his own brash way about her alcoholism. Yeah, for me, this was a total standout moment of the episode. I think that they are one of my favorite duos. The confrontation, he recruits her. Right, like you were saying, Brandy, he completely understands that she is in the throes of alcoholism, and but that doesn't mean that she can't help. Uh, mm-hmm. She just has to negotiate around her her drinking. Uh, in, indeed, like there are so many uh, dynamic duos in this episode. Alma and Trixie are pairing up to get one over on Farnham. Doc and Jane taking care of the sick or, or planning to. And then Bullock and, of course, the return of Charlie Utter, who's been out of town seemingly forever. He missed his best friend's death. He missed so much when he was establishing his mail route. But he's back, and I'm happy about it. This is a huge coincidence that he finds Seth, but I'm... Oh, completely. Yeah, yeah. but I'm so for it. And uh, I think, yeah, we get some useful exposition from him as mm-hmm. he explains to us what the markings on the horse and the tree and everything else mean regarding what happened to Seth with the Native American warrior. And then, of course, he gets the news that this time Bill really is dead. The news of his death has not been exaggerated. It's it's very sad. He seems to sort of push that aside, like his own emotion about it, in order to join Seth on his crusade to find Jack McCall. But you get a feeling that that's going to come back on him. Like, Charlie's not the kind of guy who's going to be able to just push this down forever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm confused about something. And maybe this is plot poking. But basically, he and Seth, Seth gets up off the ground. He recovers. We get that beautiful speech about, you know, how the man was just defending his friend whose body had been desecrated. And Mm -hmm. then they um, team up to not bury, but to uh, honor the man whom Bullock killed. And then they leave town. And doesn't Charlie have like like a huge collection of horses and goods that he's been dragging around with him? Yeah. Do they just leave these things in the woods? To go hunt down Jack McCall? Yeah, that's a good question because he has it back in Deadwood in the next episode. So yeah. It's like there's a holding depot for horses? <laughs> I don't know. Did they, did they hide it in a ditch somewhere? Mm-hmm. There's like eight horses. That's Anyways. a good question. <laughs> yeah, because the horses aren't there when they go go seek for McCall, right? Yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm very glad that Utter has Bullock's back when they go hunt down McCall. Just slightly confused about where all of that... Shit went. <laughs> um, side theory, there, he was traveling with a man we don't see on screen, and he was like, go ahead to Deadwood while we go on this revenge mission. I'm sure that's what it was. I think you nailed it. There is a mystery goods watcher uh, traveling with Charlie Utter. Oh, Seth's teeth are too white. <laughs> they are way too nice for the wild ones. Yeah, there was one scene where he was completely covered in blood and dirty, and that beautiful roll of like white veneers just shone through, yeah. and I was like, took me out, took me yeah. out of Deadwood. That's how these shows always are, yeah. though. Like anything that's set in like medieval times or whatever. All <laughs> the shaved like, armpits of the prostitutes. Yeah, they're like, what? Perfectly plucked brows, <laughs> and like no one has any blemishes or anything, you know. It's never quite right yeah at least people men in deadwood are appropriately dirty but seth uh, that's that one moment even more obvious that the stars still have their veneers on yeah <laughs> i love that that made it out of your list of things to discuss. i love you like, i agree before the 
this is over, I need to talk about Seth's teeth. We need some teeth makeup. Can we get yeah. some teeth makeup, please? It's a little yellow. Just something. <laughs> Um, I saw Bohemian Rhapsody. I know what they can do with uh, fake teeth. It's freaking incredible. So, I mean, just look at Jack McCall. His teeth are fucking horrible. True. Very true. <laughs> I guess they still want Bullock to be a, a sex uh, symbol I guess, for, I guess. for the show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's as sexy as it gets in Deadwood. Yeah. He's pretty sexy. Good teeth, and he takes a bath every once in a while. Pretty sexy. Occasional though, yeah. bathing and good dental hygiene is all it takes in Deadwood. Randy is Randy for Seth Bullock. That's, that's true. Let's also give uh, Saul his little moment in this episode too, though, where he is walking with Trixie on the street and you get a little little romance vibe from mm-hmm. those two as well. More Saul to come. star, sex symbol. <laughs> <laughs> He's just got really sincere eyes. I think that's what does it for me. What, what I really liked about Saul in this episode was that because Seth is out of town, or, or he maybe gets to be the representative of that duo, that we normally, Seth would be the, the first mm-hmm. line of communication with Al and, and the other patriarchal figures of yeah. the camp. But because Seth is out, Saul gets to sit at the table... Saul's the one who ponies up the money for the pot. Um, we get to see him, I don't know, more in his element. And he's almost finished building that store yeah. in Seth's absence. He's definitely, like, tidied it up, taking charge. And I I like it. He gets mm-hmm. to shine more. Yeah, and the, the store looks really nice as a structure compared to, like, all of the other things at Deadwood. It's got, like, a nice French glass doors. I was yeah, like, where wow. Where did he get those? Where did he go? I was like, that's a large pane of glass. <laughs> For, for the Wild West. Some poor mule <laughs> to carry it across a ridge. It's the opposite of Doc Cochran's, like, shanty <laughs> that Jane judges so severely. Doc Cochran basically has the same shanty that the cut wife has in uh, Penny Dreadful. Has it, uh, have you, yes. I have seen Penny Dreadful? Yes. One of my favorite episodes of television, but it's, like, the same shanty. Oh, my God. Isn't that played by, um... Patty LuPone! Yes! That oh was amazing. That episode, like, I will just rewatch it over and over again. It's so <laughs> fucking good. Slight divergence. Slight divergence. Sorry. Patty LePone. <laughs> the cut wife. Oh, one other thing I thought we should talk about is Cy and Joni. Because we've seen Al and Trixie, and I feel like Cy and Joni are sort of like their counterparts, their mm. Bella Union counterparts. Mm-hmm. So can we compare that dynamic to this deepening understanding of what is going on between Sai and Joni. What the hell is up with those two? Well, Joni says something interesting, too. She says, I pay my way, and then Sai contradicts her and says, no, you're not doing anything, which I think means that Joni's not taking customers, right? I think Joni is just sort of providing the atmosphere of a genteel, like, mm-hmm. cat house versus whatever the gem has set up with Titty Corner or, or whatever. Aside, <laughs> um, did do, like, a pretty classic pimp talk with Joni. Like, you know, I care about you, but only if you act right. That type of, like, very... Like, if you are familiar with pimp movies from the black exploitation era, that's, like, a classic line. Um, but, yeah, like, Sai is very much manipulating her emotionally to get what he wants. Joni just seems extremely depressed. Yeah, like clinically depressed. Clinically depressed, yeah. 100%. And I don't think that any of Doc Cochran's herbs hanging from his ceiling are going to help her. So no, I, Joni needs Prozac. <laughs> Joni 100% would benefit from some chemical uh, balancing. But what I can't get, and I think we do get later, is, you know, like 
how are these two thrown together? And how did Joni transition, if she did indeed transition from being a prostitute to mm-hmm. being a madam, how did that happen? Or has she always been a madam? Like, she seems to have thrall over Sai. He seems, I don't know, sexually obsessed with her, mm-hmm. but also, like, a little in love. Cla- is that a classic pimp thing? Can the pimp love the, the madam? I think, but he's still, there's still the threat of her uh, having to act right. There's still mm-hmm. that. I mean, like, there's love all sort of held only in the position that you do what you're supposed to do. So it's like a bargain. It's a complicated relationship for sure. Yeah. And definitely, I think, more complex than Al and his bevy of prostitutes. Trixie is kind of an outlier even among yeah. them because she gets sent on special missions and she mm-hmm. has Al's trust, which she is certainly taking advantage of in this mm-hmm. episode. Mm-hmm. So for all that goes down in this episode, we end on just a little scene of Al and Dan chatting after the newspapers come out. And one of these little throwaway details that makes Deadwood so great, which is Dan doesn't really care about the article about the plague and the vaccine and all of that. He just wants to know when Merrick's going to start reporting baseball scores. (laughs) (laughs) Which, like, the thought of Dan with, like, some Cracker Jack on his day off at the baseball game. In between murders. (laughs) (laughs) Who, who, Who do you think is Dan's team? I don't even know what teams exist at well, this time. Well, he was talking time. about Chicago. Wasn't he talking about something out of Chicago? So he's a cubby? <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, so it's a nice moment to go out on. But I have a feeling that bad things are still to come. <laughs> As always. So we, we leave with the pestilence in the, in the camp. Utter and Bullock out for revenge. More to come next episode. And we'll be here to talk about it. You can follow us on Twitter at LadywoodCast. Uh, if you haven't already subscribed, how are you listening to us? Number one and number two, subscribe. And leave us a, a nice comment on iTunes or whatever your method of listening is. And uh, until then, I am Lynn Sternberger. I'm on Twitter at Lynn Sternberger. I'm Brandy Sperry on Twitter at WeBrandy, O-U-I-B-R-A-N-D-I. My name is Sita. I'm on Twitter at SloBear, S-L-O-B-E-A-R. Thank you for listening.